You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. It's great to see you. I'm John chapter 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So if you have popped in with us um, and haven't been here over the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a, of a series, set of sermons called Gospel Plus Mission, where we're trying just to connect this idea that a missionary God creates and sends a missionary people. That, that Jesus was a sent Savior, and when he saves, he sends his saved people. And so just connecting these ideas, and I want to take kind of this step this morning. We're going to work through a really popular passage you're going to talk about at Christmas, but I want to try to lift Jesus up out of it this morning so we can all see him clearly. And then here's my hope for us in this room, is that when we get clear pictures of Jesus, that he would start to saturate and swell in our hearts to the point that he's got to come out of us. Okay, this is, this is the hope that, that we've got here. So here, here's where we'll start. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 1, so make sure you've got a thumb there. Here, here's where we're starting. The question is, who is Jesus? Now, when you think about that question, that, that question gets to the core. It cuts to the core of a person really, really quickly. Like if you're in a group of people and you ask that question, you know what happens there, right? I mean, either that becomes a conversation killer, right? Ever been in that room? Or it becomes like this platform that people can jump up on and, and one way or the other just go off on it, right? I mean, otherwise, normal, sane people, man, they will go off on how much they love Jesus or on the other side, how much they don't like him, right? So you, so you get kind of a range of responses to this question of who is Jesus. I mean, it cuts to the center of who people are in a hurry. It, it almost becomes like this sword that can cut right in between a family, right? Friends, a neighborhood, a country, like it can do all those things. This, this question is massive. But regardless of kind of where you are on it, I think if you've got an eye over his, kind of over history and on history, that we'd all have to admit that this person of Jesus is no doubt the most recognizable, probably the most controversial, the most cited, the most sung to person that has ever existed on the planet. I mean, just think about how many books have been written about him. I mean, way more than any other. How many songs have been sung to him? How many works of art have been commissioned and kind of to be crafted of him? I mean, he, he is a central figure in the history of the world, right? Th- this is Jesus. Now, this is what's ironic. When you think about like the days of Jesus, Go back 2,000 years ago, there was all this confusion that kind of surfaced around this question of who this guy was, like, like who, who Jesus is. Like if you can remember this story in Luke chapter 9, you might just write that down, you can go refer to it later. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus just straight up asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? Who, who are the crowd? What are they thinking about me? And it was, I mean, it's kind of funny, their response back to him, they essentially say, listen, they don't really know. I mean, they're a little bit confused on this. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, but here's the point. They're all confused about you, right? And so you get this 2,000 years ago, this confusion just kind of settles over the people. And, And here's the truth for us today. That confusion still exists. If you were to go find 10 people and ask them, who is Jesus? You're gonna get a myriad of responses inside and outside the church. Jared Wilson wrote a book on, uh, he, he called it, Your Jesus is Too Safe. And in the introduction to this book, here's what he says about this. He says, the great irony is that despite, the most dis- d- uh, despite being the most discussed and confessed figure in all of history, no historical person has been more marginalized and commoditized than Jesus. For many today, he is a generic brand, kind of a logo they wear. Um, this idea of kind of a catchphrase, a, a pick-me-up. He's been fictionalized by the last temptation of Christ, humanized by the passion of Christ, satirized by South Park. He's been romanticized by countless admirers and sanitized by the Christian con- uh, consumer culture. Here's what he's basically saying, that both inside and outside the church, a biblical picture of Jesus is not present. That there is still like this constant confusing picture that still 2,000 years later surrounds this man, this this person, Jesus. And so now if you'll remember how how the story with the disciples goes, he he asked them, okay, so who do the crowds say that I am? Like culture, these people there. But then I think he does a really important thing when he narrows the focus and really puts the bullseye on their own heart and says, but who do you think I am? 
And I think this is really what essentially Jesus is going to ask us this morning. Like, who do you say that Jesus is? And for your life and for your death, there is no more important question for you to answer. There is no bigger question. I think this is what Jesus is getting at with them. He's trying to show them that this is a foundational question that alters everything else. I think he's trying to tell them that, listen, as a disciple, you're not overly smart. You're not that brilliant. And here's the good thing. You don't have to be that smart and you don't have to be that brilliant to make a huge difference in the world. You just have to be solid and know some of the most important questions. Just a few of the most important things. The question, who am I? Who, who is Jesus? I mean, it's a central question. This is why we say all the time around here, and I stole this from A.W. Tozer, where he said the most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Your life and your death hinges on what you think after the word God. And maybe if we're going to tack like a subline onto that, we might say, and the most important thing, the most influential view as, as to how you think about God is going to be in the person of Jesus. So this is a massively important question for you, for me, for all of us, for us as a church, to, to get nailed down on and secure in who is Jesus. And so, so here's the goal for this morning. We want to look at this passage in John, first 18 verses, try to lift up who John says Jesus is, 10 things about Jesus with the hope of that so swelling in our heart that we are moved to mission. Okay, so John chapter one is where we are. One quick word of context here. Well, as you, if you open to the New Testament, you're in the book of Matthew. And as you start flipping over, you're going to get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Those four books form what, what we call the Gospels. Those four books. And so the Gospels, each of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's Jesus. Here's how he lived. Here's how he died. Here's him risen from the dead. This is the life and, and story of Jesus. Now, if you start reading, if you started in Matthew and just started reading just through the Bible that way toward John, here's what you're going to notice. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything fits good, right? I mean, everything's kind of together. Kind of the similar stories are in each one. It's a similar flow of the stories in each one. They're, they're called the synoptic gospels, those first three, because they all have similar stories, similar situations that they're similar kind of timeline that's written throughout them. But when you get to John, here's what you notice. Wow, th this is a little bit different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like, like I'm reading stories that, I, I, like I've just read three books on the life of Jesus, but I'm reading stories here that I haven't read yet. Like th this stuff is unique here. 90% of the book of John is unique to the book of John, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke. So if you look at John chapter two, you've got right off the bat, you've got this wedding at Cana where Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine. And I'm definitely, you, you look back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you're going to see that it's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that story doesn't exist. And by the way, it doesn't exist in most Baptist churches, right? I mean, it's like water to grape juice in those, right? And so you, you get the picture. It's not, it's not there in those other gospels. This is a unique gospel, and here's the reason. Because John's got a unique audience that he's writing to. Okay, so with that said, let's start in, in John chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack this. John chapter 1, starting in the first five or six words here, it says this. In the beginning was the word. So here's the first thing I want you to see about Jesus. That John is backing up and he is saying, Jesus is the word. This is who Jesus is. Now I, I want to kind of, I'm going to kind of rob some of the tension and climatic kind of a piece that this passage builds up toward. Like he doesn't start off telling you Jesus is the word. He starts off telling you the word and, and he starts to describe the word. By the time you get to verse 14, he's clearly saying though that the word is Jesus. Jesus equals the word. So then the question becomes, well, why didn't Jesus just say, or why didn't John just say Jesus and, and just call it that? Like in the beginning, Jesus. Why, why didn't he go that route instead of saying the word? So let me back up and unpack this across Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. Matthew, this is the reason that, that John doesn't say in the beginning, Jesus. Okay, so Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. So when you read the book of Matthew, you need to know that Matthew is writing to people, an audience that's primarily Jewish. This is why when you start in, in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, you're going to see that he starts with a genealogy. And when he traces the genealogy of Jesus, he goes back to Abraham. Now, why does he do that? 
Because a Jew would be really concerned about being traced back, Jesus being traced back to Abraham as the fulfillment of all that God has promised from Genesis chapter 12, right? Okay, now you get to to Luke and Luke is written primarily to a Gentile audience. So if you look at the genealogy in Luke, Luke does not trace Jesus back to Abraham. He traces Jesus back to Adam, who a Gentile crowd would be concerned with. If you look at Mark, Mark is written primarily to a Roman audience. So he doesn't even worry about the birth of Jesus. It just kind of brushed over and he immediately gets to the life and action of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. Go straight to it, right? You get to John. John is written to a Greek crowd, a philosophical people. That's who John is written to. So, so think about what John is doing here. He, he uses the word for Jesus and he does that because the word is a well-worn concept in Greek philosophical circles. They all have a framework for how to think about the word. The word for a Greek philosopher had this idea of this impersonal force that was behind the world, that this impersonal force that was controlling this impersonal force that, that was moving, that, that kind of harmonized the world, kind of gave order to the world. It is this intelligent force that's, that's controlling and is back behind everything that we see. So think about what John's doing right off the get-go. He's saying to this Greek-speaking crowd, this philosophical crowd, this word that you don't even have a name for, that this force is behind everything you see that's controlling, bringing harmony and order to all of this. That word has a name and his name is Jesus. This is what he's saying right out of the get-go here. That This thing that's behind it all, this thing has a name and this thing's name is Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing he's saying. It totally scandalizes his Greek-speaking crowd. He's got this well-worn Greek concept and he's saying, Jesus is that. But he goes on. He starts to describe the word. Verse one, first couple of, of words here. He says this, in the beginning was the word. Now look at verse two. He was, this word, this Jesus was in the beginning. So here's what John is telling us. He is telling us that Jesus is eternal. So I think we've got kind of a thought that if you're not careful, will kind of creep into your mind that Jesus, like his life started when he was born. Matthew one, right? Or Luke one and two. John, it started then. But here's what John is saying. Jesus never started. Or wrap your mind around that one, right? He, he doesn't have a, a beginning point. Just like he doesn't have an ending point. This is what it means to be eternal. That you are always there. Like he always was, he is, and in a trillion years from now, he still will be. That this is the idea that John's saying, that he is eternal. Now, if we don't feel the separation right, right off the get-go with that, let me help in this, Right? There's roughly 7 billion people right now on the planet. In a hundred years from now, none of us will be one of those, right? We're getting that? But Jesus will still be. He always was, he is, and he will always, he's eternal. You want to know the defining piece that separates Jesus from every other thing that people worship on the planet, from everything else. He is alive, right? He is eternal. Revelation 1.8, that he is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end. He was, he is, and he will always be, right? This is what separates it from Jesus from everything else. He's eternal. So John, right off the bat, is saying, Jesus is the word, and this word has always been. From, from the beginning of time, he was there. He's eternal. But he goes on. Next phrase. We're going to take two things here. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John's telling us two things here. Number one, he's saying that Jesus is distinct and Jesus is divine. Both of those. That he's distinct and he's also God. Okay, so let me unpack this. Um, when, when theologians have tried to describe God from a biblical perspective, they're taking what the Bible says about God, condensing that into a way of speaking about God. They use the word Trinity to describe him. That God is, is in a Trinity. And here's what the Trinity is in three statements. Number one, th- there is one God. Throughout the scriptures, you're going to see this consistently spoken of. That God is one. God is not divided. God is, there's one God. Deuteronomy 6, one of them. Here's the second piece of what makes the Trinity the Trinity. This is where it gets to be a little bit mind-boggling here. 
Second piece is that this one God is comprised of three distinct persons. One God, three distinct persons that make up that God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's the third phrase. And that these three distinct persons, each of those are fully God. I told you, it kind of makes your head hurt, right? So one God, three distinct persons, each one of those three distinct persons are fully God. Okay, so here's what John is unpacking for us. Those, those second two as it relates to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is distinct, that, that he is a part of God here. He, he is part of this God. He, he is dis, but he's distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So you see this when he says that, that he was with God. Jesus was with God. Here's what it means, the implication of being with somebody. If I were to say Kevin and I, like I went with Kevin, I was with him as we went to the movie, right? If I, I said something along that line, I'm with Kevin, we go to the movie. To be with somebody means you're distinct from them, right? You see the picture there? That if you're with them, it means you're not them. And so John is saying that, that Jesus is not the Father and he's not the Holy Spirit. He's distinct. But he's also saying that God or Jesus is God. Like he is fully God. That third part, third phrase of what makes the Trinity the Trinity. That, that for these Jew or these Greek speaking philosophers, this Jesus that they know of that live for 33 years, died and was buried and that they heard it raised again. This person was more than just a man. He was a man, but he was also God. See, this is what John's saying. He is totally shaking the foundations of what these people would have thought, right? So this word, he, he's saying that, he, that word is Jesus. He was before all things. He's eternal. He's distinct and he is divine. He is God. But he goes on. There's, there's more to it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So here, here's what John is saying, that Jesus is the creator. He's the creator. So all things that you see, he created. I mean, this has like this, this ring to it that goes right back to Genesis chapter one, right? If you, if you were a person that, if you were a Greek that had read your Old Testament, there is an instant like ring of the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God, right? And, and so you've got this instant ring with this in John where he is saying that this in the beginning, this word he created Everything that you see, he is the active agent of God. He's the creative component of God. So God the Father speaks in Genesis chapter one and his word, Jesus, creates everything. So if you wanna look at the beauty of a sunrise, that's the overflow of the creative word of God, Jesus. If you wanna maybe at night look up into the sky and see just trillions of stars. That's the overflow of a powerful and creative Jesus. If you want to look at the complexity of a human being, that's the overflow of a creative and a powerful Jesus. And you say, okay, well, let's get technical. Isn't that like an egg and a sperm doing its thing? Okay. It, it, who, who made that though, right? Gen or, uh, Psalms 139 is going to say that Jesus literally reaches his hands into a mama's womb and forms and fashions all of it, makes it all. Th this is Jesus. Okay, now this is going to kind of be a, a ring to what Paul says later on in Colossians as he is talking about this, this Jesus, this invisible picture of God here coming out, this visible display of God. And here's what Paul says about him in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, all things were created. He's the creator in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All this was created by him. But then he goes on, he's not just the creator, but as the creator, here's what he says about him. And all this was created for him. So he's not just the creator. By implication of being the creator, he is also the king of creation, right? That he sets above and rules over everything that is made. And I love this little last part in Colossians in verse 17, in chapter one, verse 17, he says that Paul says this about Jesus. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So, so we get this robust picture of Jesus where he is the creator of all things. He sits over all things as the king, but he is also the keeper, the sustainer of all things. 
Like Douglas Moo, a New Testament um, scholar, he, he says this about Jesus, kind of commenting on this. He says, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would, uh, would cease to work and the planets would not stay in their orbits. And this is what John is saying. That the God, that Jesus, the word, he is the creator, that the king, the sustainer, the keeper of everything. So the reason gravity works today, the reason if you jump off of something, you know you're going to fall is because God is sustaining that law of nature. The reason your heart beats without you telling it to is God is sustaining that. This is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is doing all of those things. Okay, John goes on though. Verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. He's eternal. All things were made through him. He's the creator. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then look at verse four. In him was life. Jesus is life. If you want life, you have to have Jesus. Jesus equals life, right? Okay, so there's three ways that you can maybe think about Jesus being life. Three ways the Bible kind of broadly would use this and John would use this. Number one, you, you would have this idea, life kind of used number one in one way, would be this idea of, of Genesis 1, God creates men and woman, forms them out of the dust, and then here's life in Genesis 1 and 2. God breathes into them and now they're animated. Like they, they, they go into just being something to, to actually being a living something. Okay, this is the idea of life number one. It means that you are now existing. Your heart's beating. You're moving. You can walk. You can run. You can do things a living person does. You're existing. This is life number one. Okay, but there's more to, to life biblically than just existing. More, more than sucking air in and your heart beating. Here's life number two. This is like one of these popular verses in John. John chapter 10, verse 10. Where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. You remember that verse, that, that passage there? Here, here's what he's saying in this, like second way you can use life. It's not just you existing, but it's you walking in the fullness of what life is intended to be. So do you see what John's doing here? And, and what Jesus is saying here? That, that there is more than one way to live. You can exist or you can walk in the fullness of life. The difference. You can exist and, and you can get married. You can have kids. You can work a job. You can eat. You can drink. You can have grandkids someday. You can do it all and exist. But you cannot really live without Jesus saving and redeeming and rescuing you. You'll never walk in the fullness of life without Jesus doing that. And so he's saying that, that you can exist on this level, but never walk in the fullness of what God has intended you to walk in, in the fullness of life. That, that the difference would be, you can be married and even have a good marriage without Jesus. You can do that. But you'll never experience like this biblical idea of love. Maybe you kind of think of it in terms of like the Hebrew word for dode, one of the ways that the Bible translates love in the English language. This idea of dode, like this mingling of souls this depth and meaning and beauty to what marriage, you don't get that without Jesus giving life to it. So you can exist without ever having this fullness of life that God talks about. So, so John is saying that, that Jesus is this life breather. Not only does he animate you and bring you into existence, but he is also the things that walks you into the fullness of life. And here would be the third way you can think about life. And this is like a John 3, 16, a John 3, um, 15, where Jesus is going to say that if you believe in him, you get eternal life. But that only comes through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, when people die, they are cut off eternally from the presence of God. Life, existing, the fullness of life and eternal life only comes through the person and work of Jesus. This is what John's saying, that in him is life. He, he breathes life into everything. He goes on to say this, though. This is going to be closely connected with life. Next phrase. In him was life. And next phrase says this. And the life, this Jesus, was the light of men. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So he's saying this. That Jesus is not just life, but he is also light. 
And this is a massive metaphor, this light darkness thing throughout the scriptures and throughout the Bible, specifically in John's writing, it's just laced throughout it. And he, here's what darkness would, would kind of symbolize biblically. It, it, it symbolizes life apart from God. It symbolizes this idea of us running from God, living in rebellion against God. This is what darkness is scripturally. This is like a Romans chapter one where Paul's gonna say, this is darkness. It means that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's what darkness is. Darkness is when we, we don't worship God as creator, but we worship his created things like work, like family, like pleasure. Like we put created things above God. This is darkness. That we don't acknowledge God in our life. We live as if there is no God. This is what darkness is. It means to run from God. It's the result of Genesis chapter three, the first sin playing itself out on the landscape of history. This is darkness, life apart from God. And here's what John is saying, that Jesus becomes this light. He is the light of the world. And kind of like this thing that is burning brighter than the sun, he invades the darkness. He has pierced the darkness. He lands on planet earth and now there is light here. He, he is pushing back darkness here. Okay, so I wanna just kind of walk through one implication of this. Jesus saying, I am, John 8, I am the light of the world. Here's what this means. If when you think about the world and you think about your own personal heart and life, if your solution to the world's problems or your, or your own problems, let's just take the world first. If your solution to the problems of the world is, we just need to get people educated. We just need better government. We just need to make sure people are out of poverty. All those things are good things, but here's the thing. If that is your solution to the problems of the world, it will never fix them. The only solution to the problem of the world is light. You can educate people as much as you want and as long as darkness pervades in them, they'll use that education for darkness, right? People need light. If you, when you think about your own heart, see, it's not just God coming down and invading the world with light, it's him invading your own life and heart with light, exposing it for what it is and what it isn't and presenting Jesus as the solution to it. And so if you look at your own heart and your own life, the anger that just kind of swells up in you periodically, like that weird impatience that just kind of comes out of you, right? I mean, we could go on for days there. If you look at this darkness in your own heart and life and you have a different solution than Jesus for it, we've got a problem. It doesn't work. It's like putting a, a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? That the solution to your issues is Jesus. The solution for the issues of the world is Jesus. He is a light and he alone can make darkness disappear. This is what he's saying here. That he's the light and the life of the world. Okay, he goes on. See, gloves are coming off. I mean, he, he's getting down and dirty here. And he straight, this is what Jesus is. This is what the word is. He goes on to say this, look at verse 14, skip down with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're gonna come back and catch that one here in just a second. And we have seen, you might underline this word, his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Here's what John is saying, that Jesus is glorious. He is mighty. He is great. He is big. He is grand. He is all of those things. Now, and here, here's the thing that I, I worry about for some of us, and I want to just continually kind of push on periodically, is if I were to ask you, like, give me a picture of Jesus. Like, what, what's the picture that forms in your mind when you think of him? I think what happens for a lot of us is we think of the frail human being that came roughly 2,000 years ago and lived and walked among us. Frail, willing to be mocked, allowed himself to be massacred, that, that Jesus, right? It's around Christmas time, so maybe we think of Jesus as a baby. If it's Easter, we might think of Jesus, man, nailed to a cross. But here's what I want you to see. That's not the complete picture of Jesus. The picture we're left with in the Bible, when you turn to Revelation chapter 19, the picture there is much different than the frail, weak, willing to be mocked Jesus. The picture in Revelation 19 is the Jesus sitting on a white horse, right? He's, he's like the UFC sort of a Jesus. He's got this massive tattoo on his thigh, it says. It says King of Kings rolling down his leg. You got that? I mean, that's not 
the picture of Jesus, hair kind of waving in the wind here, right? This is tattoo on leg Jesus. It says his eyes are flaming fire out of the, out of his mouth, out of the word of God. His mouth is like this sword that is going to slay the nations. His robe, it says, is dipped in the blood of his enemies. This is Jesus at the end of the deal here, right? And that is a different picture than Jesus on earth, right? And so I think we just need to have that balance that this Jesus, the picture of Jesus now and the picture that we'll see when we see him next face to face is a picture of a mighty, of a glorious, of a great big Jesus, no longer willing to be mocked, right? This is the picture of Jesus. This is the Jesus that is currently reigning and ruling over the nations, a glorious Jesus. And John uses a couple of things to describe him. He says, one, that he's full of truth. You see that in the passage there? That he's full of truth, that Jesus is truth. And so this is a good thing for us to know because here's what this means. When we align our life under Jesus, we are aligning our life with how things are. That when we align our life under Jesus, we're not building our life on the sand like Matthew 7 would say but we are building our life on the rock. He's truth for us. And underneath that, it says that that he's this fullness of grace. You see that in there? He's the fullness of grace. And it's not like just a little bit of grace. It's He gives this picture of it's grace upon grace. It's like a mound of grace and to put another mound on top of that and another mound on top of that, that's what Jesus is for you. That he's the fullness of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. This is grace. And aren't we thankful that we have a savior that is full of grace? Aren't we thankful for that? And this is how, this is how these massive gospel truths fit together. Truth is what sobers us. Truth is God is perfect. You are not. Truth is God is just and you are sinful. Truth is God is a righteous judge and you're convicted as guilty. Truth is we are under the wrath of God. Truth is we've got a problem with God. Truth is God's got a problem with us. That's truth. That sobers us. But here's the beauty of grace is grace is what satisfies us. Grace is God has got a problem with us. And so Jesus takes care of the problem. Grace is God, Jesus sent, or God sends Jesus. Jesus comes and lives among us and he lives the perfect life in place of our imperfect one. Dies an undeserving death in place of our deserving death. This is grace that satisfies. And aren't we thankful that God is full of grace? Aren't we thankful for that? Next picture, keep reading with me. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Okay, now, now you need to pause right there. That's first part of the, the, what he's trying to say. No one has seen him. God is this invisible God. Old Testament, he's saying, listen, you see me, you're going to die. You're going to have a problem with this. Your, your brain will explode here, okay? So you, you can't do that. Okay, so no one has ever seen God, but then listen to what he says. Pause. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, the only God at the Father's side. We're talking Jesus here, that God. At the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made God, him, known. This is what he's saying, that Jesus is the visible display of God. Apart from Jesus, we do not know who God is. Apart from Jesus, we don't have an understanding of how God reacts, how he responds. If you've ever had the question, who is God and what does he do? What, how does he respond? What are the reflexes of his heart? Look at Jesus. He is the visible display of God. This is what he's saying. So maybe you can picture God like this. It's going to be a little bit of a stretch. Work with me here. If you can picture God as a house, you drive by, like you, you round the curve, you see the house and your instant thought is that house is unbelievable. I mean, that house is big. That house is beautiful. I would love to see inside that house. And so you, you go and you make kind of your exterior kind of examination of the house and you realize that house is bricked up to the top of the roof. There are no windows. There are no doors. You can't see in that house. I mean, you, you cannot see what's inside. You have no glimpse of the inside there. This is the situation apart from Jesus. That, that we've got this idea that God is big. He's beautiful, but, but we have a hard time seeing God. 
But here's what Jesus does. When God sends Jesus, the bricks to the house come crumbling down and windows are put up. And Jesus is the window. He, He is the thing that now encircles the house, allowing you to see through and get these beautiful glimpses of God. This is why it is so important for us to spend time in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Because as you read about Jesus, as you see his life lived out, as you see him respond and react, you are seeing how God functions. You are seeing who God is. So as we read through the Gospels, as we come across John chapter 8, we see the mercy of God as these Pharisees throw a woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. They could literally stone her to death and be justified in doing it. And Jesus in his mercy acquits her. We we could read Luke chapter 8 and see Jesus walk out to the bow of the boat and calm the storm with the words of his mouth. And we see God as all-powerful, right? We can see that the God of peace, as we watch the life of Jesus, and if you just read about him, you never see him in a hurry. Isn't that odd? You can't look at us and us not being a hurry. So you see this beautiful peace of God as you look at the life of Jesus. He's never in a rush. He's never running about in this frantic fear to get the next thing done. You see the wisdom of God as he confounds the Pharisees, Right? You, you see the patience of God as he deals with difficult disciples. They just don't get it. You see this patience of God shine through. Right? So when you, when you read the gospels, you are reading who God is. When you watch Jesus climb up on a cross, you are seeing the wrath of God displayed. This is what God thinks about sin. He just killed his own son for it. When you see God climb up on the cross, Jesus climb up on the cross, you're getting to see the love of God displayed. This is what he thinks about sin. He's going to kill somebody for it. And here's the love of God. He doesn't kill you for it. He kills his own son for it. So when we read the gospels, we're seeing this is who God is. Jesus makes the invisible God visible for us. Last one. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You might circle the word flesh and the word dwelt. He dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Last one, number 10. I want you to see this idea of Jesus, the missionary. He's a missionary. He is a sent man. He, the Father has sent him. When you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to see over 40 times the word sent or sending. You're going to see 40 times used in the book of John. This continual picture of Jesus as missionary. Jesus as a one who is going. Jesus as the one who is piercing the darkness. Jesus is the one that is going into neighborhoods, into the nations. This is the picture of Jesus. He is a missionary God. Okay, now I want to just point out two phrases to you. Number one, it says that he became flesh. That's the Greek word sarx. And that's like a stark, kind of a shocking word that he used. There's, there's softer words that he could have thrown out to describe this. But he's using a stark word to show that Jesus became flesh. Not like he became skin, but that he became a human being. That Jesus, God, he humbled himself wrapped himself into a human body and lived among us. He subjected himself to everything it means to be human. A.K.A. he was born. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm God, I'm not getting into a womb and going that route. Not doing it, right? He subjected himself. He takes all that it means to be human and he goes there. He's born. Not only was he born, he's born in a manger. I definitely wouldn't have chosen that route, right? Not only was he born in a manger, but he is a little boy that has nerves. So when you punch him, it really does hurt. If you cut him, he really does bleed, right? You you see this picture of Jesus where he subjects himself to, to all that it means to be human. He goes through puberty, right? Think about that when his voice is really gonna crack at one point. He's gonna become a man. All the things it means to be a man. That means he's got back hair probably, right? 
That means he's going to become about 30, right? He starts his ministry at 30. Means if he's like me and a lot of us in here, he's starting to lose his hair. All that it means to be human, Jesus is going there. He's subjecting himself to it. Here's what that means. That he knows what it feels like to be betrayed, to be tempted, to be lonely, to be killed. Every human experience that you will ever go through, Jesus can look at you and say, because he became flesh, I know what that feels like. This is the picture of your missionary Jesus. And not only did he become flesh, but it says he dwelt. The Greek word is tabernacled among us. So you've got rich Old Testament imagery here with tabernacle, right? You've got God busting the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. And one of the first things that he does is he gives them detailed plans to build this tent or this tabernacle to set in the middle of their camp. And, and the tabernacle was essentially a place where a perfect and a holy God would meet with imperfect and unholy people. It became the place of God's presence. And John, with all this packed Old Testament imagery, is saying that Jesus is the tabernacle. That it's no longer in a building, but it's in a body, in the life and work of Jesus. So John is unpacking, he's describing, this is the word, and, and this is who the word is for us. It reminds me of this uh, scene. I, I don't know how many of you are C.S. Lewis people, and how many of you are C.S. Lewis plus Chronicles of Narnia people. If you've read the books, maybe seen some of the movies. Um, at the end of Prince Caspian, okay, at the end of that book, there, there's this beautiful scene where Lucy um, is at the end. She's kind of reunited with Aslan, kind of the Jesus-like figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan has got her kind of in, in the midst of his paws, playing with her, just all that, having a good time. And Lucy looks up at him and says, kind of in this epiphany, this kind of this drastic moment and, and says, you look different. You look bigger than, than I've ever seen you look before. And Aslan, kind of this Christ-like figure, makes this, I, I think, a kind of a profound statement back. He, he says, with every year that you grow older, I'll look bigger and bigger to you. And I, it's kind of this prophetic thing into the life of believers that every year that you walk with God, pray to God, live with God, spend time... Every year that passes, Jesus becomes bigger and brighter and more beautiful and more grand and more glorious to us. This is the picture. Okay, so here's, here's how I want to end. John unpacks, this is Jesus. This is what he looks like. This is who he is. And then right in the middle of, of that introduction to Jesus, look at verse 6. He introduces another person, John the Baptist. So, and it kind of is a stark, weird, like, why would you put it there? But John has an intentional purpose with this. He's right in the middle of the introduction. This is the word of God. This is Jesus. All that he is, all that he's done, this is, this is him. And then in the middle of that, you've got verse six where he says this. I'm going to read it and make a couple of comments about it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He became, or he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Three, three quick things here. God sent a man, John. He, he sent John the Baptist. Now, I, I want to just continually keep this before you. That This is God's typical MO. This is how he normally does things. He doesn't have to do it this way. There's a few instances where he doesn't. But as a general rule, when God is going to accomplish something, he does that by sending a person, by sending a man or a woman. So think about this in terms of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, God comes to, to Moses and says, I am about to bust Israel out of Egypt. I'm about to humble Pharaoh. I'm going to destroy that guy. And, and here we go. And then he turns to Moses and says, now you go do it. I mean, isn't that interesting? I'm going to go do this, so now go do it. This is God's M.O. I'm, I'm about to do something, so now go do it. I mean, th this is the invitation to those who are saved or to live as sent people. People on the mission of God, that God's accomplishing his mission through. So it says that, that, that John was sent, that God sent a man. And then look what God sent him for. To be a witness, used three times. To witness. 
God sent a man to be a witness. Now, what is a witness? A witness is a person who validates the truth, who, who speaks and demonstrates all that they have seen, all that they have heard, and all that they have experienced. And John, it says, is a witness to that. That he's got this image and this view of who Jesus is. And now he has become a witness to all that he's seen, all that he's heard, all that he's experienced. That, that John is living as a sent witness for God, for Jesus. And I want to point your attention to verse 8 real quick. I want you to notice this. That John has this clear in his mind. And we always need to keep this clear. John knew that he was not the Savior. But he was a witness to the Savior. Application for us. You are not anyone's savior. So you don't have to feel the weight of being a savior for someone. You don't have the capacity to save people, to change people. Only God does. Stonegate is not a person's savior. Your savior or anyone else's savior. I am no one's savior. We make terrible saviors. But we, by God's grace, get to point to and be a witness to the one who is the Savior, a good and gracious Jesus. This is what we get to do. So we're living as witnesses, sent as a witness to the light. This is what John's saying. And then he throws in this last little comment here. God sent a man to be a witness with the aim of or so that some might believe. So, so John comes as a witness and then prays and pleads and points to the Savior, demonstrates the gospel with his life, declares it with his lips, so that by God's grace, some will look at Jesus and love him and trust him and treasure him. So maybe you could think about this this way. For all of us that are caught up in Jesus, this is what our lives should look like. Not because we're told to, but because we can't help it. That when we see this grand, big, beautiful view of Jesus, then we become a man, a woman, sent by God as a witness so that some might believe. You know what I pray for a lot of us in here? Is that when you look back over your life at the end of, of your days, or, or maybe it's when your son or daughter are trying to think about, what am I going to put on my dad's tombstone, right? What, what am I going to write on that thing? That, that maybe they would say something like this, that God sent a man and his name was fill in the blank, your name. He was a witness and some believed. That may that be your story in this thing. At the end of the days, when you look back over your life, that you are a man or a woman saved and sent by God as a witness so that some believe. And look at verse 11 and 12. This gives the two responses that all people have to Jesus. It's one or the other. Verse 11, some people reject him. He goes to his own people. They, they don't receive him. They reject him. See, the, the light of Jesus can be a blessing or a curse. It just depends on if you're ready or not to be found or if you're still on the run, right? Whether or not the light of Jesus is a blessing or a curse depends on are you ready to be found or do you still want to run? See, if you still want to run, if you still want to hide, like this is John 3.20, if you still want to hide in your wickedness, then, then the light of Jesus becomes this search helicopter that's taking you back to jail. So, so for those people, they're going to reject him. But look at verse 12. For, for those that are ready to throw up their hands and trust Jesus with their life, everything, God, here I am, take me. For those that are ready to treasure him above all things, it will be those that receive him, that believe in him, and that God gives the right to become a child of his, a son or daughter of his. And this is this big, beautiful gospel theme of adoption, where God brings you in when you receive him, and he makes you a son. All the rights, privileges, and resources of the king are now yours. And may this Christmas be about us seeing and savoring that Jesus and us being sent and living as witnesses of that Jesus so that some will receive him. Amen? May it be. J.C. Ryle, old pastor, we'll finish with this. I think this is a good application and finish to our week as we kind of head into Christmas. Be up on the screen for you. Do you ever try to do good to others? 
If you do, remember to tell them about Christ. Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the aged, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, tell the dying. Tell them all about Christ. Tell them of all of his power. Tell them of his love. Tell them of his doings and tell them of his feelings. Tell them of what he has done for the chief of sinners. Tell them what he is willing to do to the last day of time. Tell it to them over and over and over again. Never be tired of speaking, of witnessing about Christ. Say it to them broadly and fully, freely and unconditionally, unreservedly and undoubtingly. Come unto Christ and you shall be saved. That is our Jesus. Let's pray. So as you just allow the Holy Spirit to kind of work on you in the next minute or two, maybe a couple of questions would be, would be good for you to work through. One, have I received this Jesus? I mean, have I trusted him? I've thrown my life on him, surrendered everything, laid down all rights, and claimed him? Have you trusted him as your savior? As the one that can save you, that can fix you? Have you trusted him? And have you treasured him above all things? So this is what it means to believe. This is what it means to receive him. That we trust God and we treasure God above everything. And this is the heart of Christmas, that Jesus came to redeem so that you would have a heart that's willing to receive. So have you done that? And if you haven't, this this would be God's present to you, is Jesus, to to take him, to receive him. So so if you want to work through that, if you want to kind of start down that journey of what that means, I'd encourage you to take your guest card, fill in that blank that um, says how to establish a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to follow up with you, have that conversation and kind of work through that. If you are one of those who has received God, you've believed, you've trusted and treasured Jesus, are you living as sent people, as a witness to the life? When you think about Christmas, is Christmas to you about getting a gift or is it about being a witness? And what does that look like if we live as a witness in our family over Christmas, right? I mean, what does it look like to live as sent people, as a man sent, as a woman sent by God as a witness so that some will believe in our neighborhoods, amongst our families as we celebrate the coming of Jesus? I mean, what does this look like as we go to work, as we live in 2011, as a sent man or woman, as a witness to all that we have seen and heard and experienced, and oh, by God's grace, that some will be saved. God, I pray this for us. God, I pray that we would see Jesus, that we would savor him, and that this Jesus swelling in our hearts would send us as good witnesses, as faithful witnesses, with the gospel demonstrated in our lives, declared from our lips every moment of every day. God, God, will you help us with that? We need much grace. God, we we tell you thank you for Jesus, this God becoming flesh and tabernacling among us. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that he would become bigger and bigger and bigger every moment we, we live, every year that we live. So God, give us grace for that. It's in your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.